Hello, and welcome to The Promise of Discovery, a podcast where members and investigators at the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center talk about their research in intellectual and developmental disabilities. Good afternoon. My name is Jeffrey Newell. I'm the director of the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center, and I'm uh, glad to be here today uh, with Lisa Montegia, who is the director of the Vanderbilt Brain Institute. Would you like to introduce yourself a little bit, Lisa? Hi, yes. I'm delighted to be here, Jeff, and thank you for having me. Uh, as Jeff said, I'm Lisa Montegia. I'm the director of the Vanderbilt Brain Institute. I've been here uh, in Nashville for three years. I'm a professor of pharmacology, psychiatry, and psychology. And our lab has largely focused on two different aspects of research. One has really been focused on antidepressant action and the other on Rett syndrome, which as uh, we're gonna discuss, Rett syndrome is a neurodevelopmental disorder. And uh, through the years, it's given me the chance to interact with Jeff. And rather surprisingly, in work that we're gonna discuss, um, there's sort of an intersection that we identified rather unexpectedly um, in signaling of a gene involved in Rett syndrome. That's great um, for setting that up. And um, yeah, so maybe we can just uh, go back a little bit. So um, you, you said that you had these two different avenues of research about how antidepressants work and then working on this neurodevelopmental disorder. And, you know, that may seem a little bit, although you can see maybe how there may be some overlap, they also may seem sort of very far apart. So I'm just curious how you got into working on both of those things. So I was hired as a faculty member and um, I wanted to branch, my background had all been in addiction. And I wanted to branch into a new area. And I really went to the literature and was trying to figure out what would be the new area to study. And as a starting assistant professor, you never really know, even with the best of ideas of what's going to work. And so I was really fascinated with the question of antidepressants and how they work. Could we actually tease apart how you give an antidepressant and yet typically they take several weeks to work. Why is that? And um, at the same time, the other question in the literature that I found intriguingly interesting was that there was a gene called MECP2, which had been identified as um, the gene involved with Rett syndrome. And that I discovery had happened a couple years prior, and it was really unknown what this gene was doing in the brain. How was it that it wasn't one mutation, but it really, a whole range of mutations or changes in this gene were linked to Rett syndrome. And I really felt with the skills we had, that was also an interesting question. So I started off with these sort of two separate questions, if you will, part of it was just, okay, let's explore and see what happens. And um, rather quickly, we got data on both projects that turned quite exciting and over the last, 18 years, we've been continued to publish in both areas. And now, as I sort of think about these two separate questions, I, they're not so separate. What we're really trying to understand is very molecular cellular questions of how you can elicit changes in the brain. 
whether it's through a drug or through changes in a gene, but really how do you change the function of the neuron? What is the impact, if you will? And so these two very separate independent lines of evidence uh, and research um, have sort of merged more in terms of the approaches of how we're thinking about the brain. And then, um, you know, as we're gonna discuss, actually uh, connect at a maybe more mechanistic level. Yeah, so, um... Yeah, obviously this is uh, um, a topic that's close to my heart because I focus most of my research on Rett syndrome and these uh, the MECP2 gene, which controls the expression of a lot of other genes, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I know that you've worked in the past about trying to understand um, what are the things that start to help uh, tell MECP2 to work or not work? And uh, maybe you could just describe some of the things that you've, that we know about or you've learned about. So I think probably over the, like I said, last several years, as we've tried to really understand what MECP2 is doing in the brain. And um, I will say MECP2 or MECP2, um, they're the same gene. Often we kind of will say one or the other, but they're the same, uh, the same gene that are linked to Rett syndrome. And so I think probably the most impactful things that we've done is we've done a lot of studies looking at the function of what happens if MECP2 is not functional in a neuron. If, it's, if, it, if you have a mutation or the protein isn't made, what happens? And what we've been able to show is some very specific deficits in synaptic connectivity, if you will, in a synaptic function. And the synapses are where the neurons communicate. So even though this gene MECP2 is located in the middle of the neuron, if you will, at the point of contact of where the cells, the neurons communicate, there are specific deficits. And they're very specific. It's not just everything goes awry. But by studying and identifying these particular synaptic deficits, can we start to understand what you may need to correct as a possible therapeutic or treatment for Rett syndrome? Yeah, that's great. And, um, and you know, hopefully, I think you're right. Uh, understanding this better will allow us to approach um, developing new therapies for Rett syndrome and potentially for other um, neurodevelopmental disorders that might mm -hmm. also have problems at that, like you said, that connection point, that the synapses, right? Um, maybe you can elaborate a bit more because uh, about if this affects other neurodevelopmental mm -hmm. disorders at the synapse. Yeah, so, um, so again, the point of where neurons connect are, are um, synapses. And what's been intriguing is that there have been a number of proteins that are located at that synapse that cause specific deficits in neuronal communication or synaptic communication, if you will. And again, it's not that everything goes awry, but there seem to be some specific deficits that are seen across these various mutations in genes that are linked to autism. And again, these proteins or genes are located right at the synapse. And so again, if there's a problem, it might not be surprising that you have synaptic deficits, but it may be a little surprising if you take a step back to think about the fact that you seem to see a lot of the same changes regardless 
of which protein is altered. With Rett syndrome, I think the surprise was is that this gene MACP2 is not located at the synapse. It's in a totally different part of the neuron, yet it's producing some of the same synaptic changes that we're seeing with other neurodevelopmental disorders, or you know, in particular with genes that are linked to autism. And so it's really, I think, put forth this idea that, you know, are some of these neurodevelopmental disorders, is the output sort of the same on, a, on the changes in neurotransmission, even though you may be able to get those changes many different ways through mutating particular protein here or protein there, or, you know, in the case of Rett syndrome with MECP2. And so it's an interesting idea because it suggests that by studying these, and if you can start to think about how you may correct these deficits, for example, with MACP2, you may have wider implications for other neurodevelopmental disorders. Not all, but there clearly seem to be some commonalities. And it is interesting because as I said, when you look at the synaptic properties, you're looking at many, many different measurements. Many of those measurements are unchanged. They're completely normal. So it's not just that everything goes awry. The specificity is actually important because with specificity, you may be able to start to correct particular things. If everything went awry, it's difficult. You're going to correct everything. So that's really our hope. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense if, you know, if you see similar problems with how the neurons are talking to each other in different disorders, you know, you might have, and if you have a therapy that try, that might help one fix that communication issue, maybe it would also help some of these other disorders um, help that communication issue. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a, that, that can be very exciting. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the other things that you mentioned um, is that your lab is focused on how antidepressants work. And, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, may have heard of things, you know, antidepressants um, like Prozac or these other things that are serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Um, what tell, could you just describe a little bit about what kind of antidepressants you work on and broadly what um, you found? So um, our lab started off working on typical antidepressants, things like Pro Prozac, Wellbutrin over the years. And um, really, it's an interesting question because everybody knows somebody that is um, either depressed or takes an antidepressant. It's a very um, common psychiatric disorder, and thankfully, there are treatments like antidepressants that work in many patients. And it's interesting because you take an antidepressant, and typically, you have to wait for a couple of weeks before you start to feel better. And it's really been unclear why. And so um, over the years, we've done a lot of work trying to really look at why that is and what is necessary for an antidepressant response. And um, we've published a number of papers on this. We've identified a gene that's important for antidepressants to work. And um, as we sort of continue down this path, again, these antidepressants take several weeks to exert an antidepressant action or antidepressant effect. There was some clinical work that came out uh, with a drug called ketamine. And people on the podcast may have heard of ketamine. Ketamine is a drug that's been around for a long time. Um, at very high levels, it can be an anesthetic. At more mid-level doses, it can be an abuse drug, a street drug. Um, it has a range of names, including K-hole, 
um, you know, special K, a whole thing can trigger sort of a hallucinogenic type effect. Um, but what was found is that extremely, extremely low doses, if they infused a very low dose of ketamine in patients, that what they could find was a very rapid antidepressant effect within 30 minutes, starting within 30 minutes. And that was remarkable because up to this point, we didn't think that it, that you could have an antidepressant effect that quickly. Like there was a lot of talk about antidepressant effects involve rewiring in the brain. And that's why they take a couple of weeks to work. And yet completely unexpectedly, it was found that a low dose of ketamine could trigger this very rapid effect. And not only was it rapid, the single infusion, this 30 minute infusion, people started feeling better within you know, 30 minutes, a couple hours. But some people actually had antidepressant effects out for days to weeks later with that single infusion. So it was pretty remarkable. And um, so we've been focused on trying to understand how ketamine is doing that. How do you trigger this rapid antidepressant effect? Because we thought that by understanding how you trigger the rapid antidepressant effect, we might start to uncover a little bit about how typical antidepressants work. They're gonna work in a different way but is there a point downstream where maybe they merge? And um, for the purposes of this paper, we've published a number of work, published quite a bit on how we think that ketamine triggers this rapid antidepressant effect. It has very fast effects on synaptic transmission, very specific effects. And that's what makes somebody um, experience an antidepressant effect. But as, um, like I said, we published a lot on this, putting forth really, a, I think, a novel hypothesis on how this works. We started asking, though, so we have this mechanism for how you have a rapid antidepressant effect, but how does this drug that you infuse for a very short amount of time, it has a very short half-life, so it's not going to remain in your body for very long, still have effects days to weeks later? And so that really was the focus of uh, the study we're going to talk about. Yeah, so I mean, you, you, you're saying, uh, and people have probably heard, there's been a lot of talk about ketamine with antidepressant, but it, 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 that it's working even when the drug isn't in the body anymore. Mm -hmm. The effect yeah. that it keeps lasting, um, which is really fascinating. And um, of course, I'm also interested in ketamine um, because we are doing a clinical trial with ketamine and Rett syndrome because previous other people had shown that that seems to improve some of the features in the animal model of Rett syndrome. So, you know, and I think this is where we start bridging out. So let, you know, thinking about this and let's, let's talk a little bit about um, your specific newest work um, about uh, uh, what, what, like you were saying, if I could frame it, it you know, trying to understand what is it that causes this long-term change? Like, what is the long, you know, what, how does that happen? What, what causes that? Yeah, so, so to back up a little bit, what we've shown is that um, in prior work is that ketamine, it blocks a particular protein. And when it does that, it triggers a whole cascade of events that impacts synaptic transmission, that communication very quickly. And rather surprisingly, you get a form of plasticity in the brain. You get a change in um, sort of long-term effects, if you will, in um, the sort of plasticity aspects of the brain. You're sort of, you're triggering something novel in the brain, a sort of a novel form of communication. 
And so as we thought about this, it's like, okay, well, how do you get these long-term effects? You give the drug and yet you still have effects weeks out. It's not that the drug is still there. It has to be exerting effects. We have this sort of plasticity that we know that's involved for rapid effects, but what happens long-term? Wait, wait, just let me interrupt you. So just when you say plasticity of the brain, what does that kind of mean? So plasticity is sort of um, a change in the brain. Your brain is not stagnant. Um, as you're looking outside, your eyes are visualizing what's outside and you're turning on part of your brain. As you're listening, you're turning on part of your brain. As you learn, you turn on part of your brain and you make new connections. What we're showing is that ketamine is actually forming new connections. It's doing it different than learning, but it's forming a sort of new connection, a type of plasticity. So your brain is changing and ketamine is able to actually change um, communication in your brain. And so we see that with ketamine, it happens very quickly, but it lasts for a while. And so we said, okay, what happens out, you know, a week later? And can we think about how this would work? And um, when you change communication, there are gonna be things that happen. Gene, there has to be changes with genes and proteins that turn on or turn off. And so we actually did a survey and we said, what are genes that control other genes? Probably if you're involved in a long-term effect, you probably are, you probably in some way are hitting one of these master controllers of other genes. And that is probably involved in long-term changes. And so we did a survey of a number of these master, you know, regulators, if you will, transcription factors are what they're called. And we looked at them and we had a couple ideas what we got very excited about. And there was nothing. There were just no changes, no changes. It was starting to get rather dismal. And um, MECP2 is a master communicator. And so we said, well, okay, throw that in. That wasn't really at the top of our list, um, but it's like, why don't we, you know, we, we were just throwing everything in. So we were gonna look at it anyhow, but it was further down the list. And what was rather surprising is that if we um, deleted or the function of MECP2, we didn't get these long lasting antidepressant effects suggesting that MECP2 was involved. And that was surprising to us because again, we looked at a number of other genes and everything was fine. You delete them and ketamine still has long-term effects. But with MECP2, we saw something different. And so with that, we um, started to really focus in why MECP2, what is it doing? And um, we went through a number of studies. And what was interesting is that if the function of MECP2 was impaired, you could generate the rapid antidepressant effect, but you didn't get the long-term effect. So again, it was having a specific effect. It was a downstream effect. And what was interesting is that this long-term effect, the behavioral effect was dependent on MECP2, but what, so was this longer form of plasticity, if you will. And so it really starts to provide a molecular connection of really a step-by-step -step of what may be happening to elicit the long-term effect. Yeah, I mean, that's, I, that's really fascinating and, and fortuitous that it was two things that you happen to also be working on. I know, I know, so, who would think? So, you know, and I think, you know, one of the things that makes, you know, that I wonder about then out of the work that, that you have with the antidepressant aspects, 
because like I said, you know, we're doing a clinical trial of, ret of ketamine and Rett syndrome. And, you know, the previous work has shown some ability for it to improve um, some of the features of Rett syndrome in the animal model. But in, in those studies, they gave it to the animals every single day, not kind of like you're talking about where you just gave it once and you had this long-term effect. Yeah. And so do you think that what you're finding that it might um, have implications on, um, first of all, how ketamine might be helping things like Rett syndrome, but also second, um, in specifically in Rett syndrome where MECV2 is not there, how often you have to give the drug? Will you be, you know, could, do you think you'd be able to do it like in depression where you only give it every two weeks or something? Or would it be something that you don't expect to see a long-term benefit, but instead you really have to give it pretty consistently? That's a really interesting question. So the thing with ketamine, um, you know, as you know, is there's always this concern with long-term chronic usage. So with the antidepressant work, um, you know, people gave this low dose, they got this rapid effect that could last for days or weeks, but then you're going to have to give the drug again to sustain the antidepressant effect. So there's a lot of clinical work of when do you give the next ketamine? Can you, should you do it just once a week? Should you do it maybe twice a week? What should you do? The interesting part with the animal study was that they did do it every day. So they're not really going after the sustained effect. It's just this rapid effect. And so it's an interesting question and it's not something that we've yet looked at, but it's something we're interested in. Um, because of the potential side effects with ketamine, again, most of the field coming from the antidepressant work has been this intermittent administration. So we followed a protocol that's being done in the clinic and that's what sort of uncovered this long-term plasticity in MECP2. But it is going to be interesting to see. I mean, again, we could show that ketamine had rapid effects if you impaired MECP2 function. It was just not the long-term effects. So could it suggest maybe some sort of intermittent dosing? You know, we'll have to see. We'll have to see. Yeah, I think, I think that's going to be a really interesting uh, point of study. Well, we're coming near the end. Is there... Um... Uh, what, you know, what, what, how, what do you, what would you like people to take away from this, um, our conversation and your work as really a kind of a broader picture and implications and where, what you think would be um, meaningful moving forward? So I think, you know, we've been talking about Rett syndrome and MECP2 and, um, you know, it's a master regulator of gene expression. That's how we sort of started down this path and linking it to antidepressant action. And the gene was identified as, um, you know, linked to Rett syndrome in 1999. So a little more than 20 years ago. And I think what this study revealed is a very unexpected role for MECP2 in sort of a novel form of plasticity. There's still many things we don't know about this gene. From an antidepressant standpoint, it's interesting because what we're showing is that, at least what we think is happening, is we have this mechanism for how ketamine is working as an antidepressant, where we can sort of piece it together. And you give ketamine, you have this rapid effect, you may be eliciting a novel form of synaptic plasticity or communication in the brain of which MECP2 is sustained for it. 
But the idea that this gene, which is linked to Rett syndrome, is playing a role suggests that there's so many ways that we still don't understand its function in the brain. And the idea that it can be involved in novel forms of plasticity, I think, are really interesting. I mean, could you tap into understanding more of these forms of plasticity? And could that have therapeutic benefit for Rett syndrome? Yeah, I, I definitely that seems, uh, and, and I was just thinking about it as we started talking about the various neurodevelopmental disorders and the parts of the, um, the whole signaling, the communication, that there may be common things um, for neurodevelopmental disorders that, you know, maybe um, there are going to be more ties. Obviously, it's not like the same type of mutations in MECP2 that cause Rett syndrome, but alterations in MECP2 function might be important in how people respond to antidepressants. And maybe some of these other neurodevelopmental disorders, by under, us understanding them, we may also get, gain insights into um, uh, response to antidepressants in typically developed individuals who may have differential responses. Yeah, I think so. I think one thing I will add is how we're thinking about it. And again, from the antidepressant angle is that um, there's um, there's this idea that's been out there for a while and it was came from commercials that were on TV uh, for a while about depression. And they would draw like uh, two little neurons and uh, they would show serotonin coming out. And then it would say, if you're depressed, you have less serotonin and antidepressants fix that. And now you have more serotonin. And the reality of it is there's very little data to suggest that's what causes depression. There's very little, you do increase serotonin, but you're not necessarily fixing anything. But we've been, we've been as a field sort of focused on this idea that whatever the drug does, it must be fixing something. So an antidepressant must be fixing depression. I think what our data is suggesting is something different, which is exciting. And what we're suggesting is because of ketamine having this such rapid effect, you're not fixing anything. What we're suggesting is you may be triggering a novel form of plasticity or communication in the brain. And what's interesting about this novel form of communication is it doesn't interfere with learning and memory. It's a completely novel form. We don't quite know what it's good for. We're trying to understand that. But the idea that MECP2 has a role in this novel form of plasticity is interesting. Could it be with Rett syndrome that you have problems maybe in engaging certain types of plasticity? Are there ways to overcome that than the traditional ways of how we think about brain function? Absolutely. Well, you know, we're getting near the end of our time. Uh, are, is there any questions you wanna turn back and ask me? So, um, yeah, what, um, why don't you just briefly fill us in on your ketamine clinical trial and really what are you looking for in this? And do you think this could have applicability for other diseases as well, neurodevelopmental disorders? Yeah, really quickly. I mean, we, we're studying um, ketamine in uh, a very early phase trial and we're giving it uh, oral ketamine to people with Rett syndrome for five days. Uh, and then we, it's called crossover design. So then they also get placebo five days and we don't know the order. Um, and really the primary goal is to, to see if it's safe in people with Rett syndrome. Um, but we are measuring things like breathing and other clinical features because that's been shown to improve in the animal model. Um, and so, but I think that, you know, your, the, your recent work, one of the things that really I'm 
I'm keen on and I alluded to was, because we don't know, is how often do we need to give the ketamine yeah. to see an effect in Rett syndrome? Because uh, we base a lot on what's been done in depression or chronic pain or some of the other ways people are using it. But we probably are going to have to think about this and understand it a little bit better so we can give it at the right amount and the right timing, right? And maybe different than what we see in depression. That's what, that's one of the things I really took away from uh, your work. So I think it's going to be an interesting, interesting things to follow up on. Yeah, no. And, um, you know, as we continue to collaborate, I think there's going to be a lot of points of intersection as we're approaching these questions in different ways that hopefully will move the field forward and provide, you know, really, hopefully therapeutic advance as well. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really hopeful that, the, that again, like we will, it'll advance our understanding of things that involve that are critical for neurodevelopmental disorders, but that information is also going to advance uh, what is critical for understanding how antidepressants work. And so I think these are both very important problems. And I think that it's exciting that, um, you know, there's advances in both that may actually be converging. So I'd just like to uh, thank you, Lisa, for sitting down and talking to me today and telling us about your work. And I'd like to thank everybody who's listening to the podcast. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Promise of Discovery. Be sure to visit the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center website at vkc.vumc.org to learn more about today's episode. And tune in next time for more on the innovative research and intellectual and developmental disabilities from the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center.